Good morning, and we are pleased to be broadcasting this lesson that was preached on July the 19th, 2020, in the assembly of the Coolidge Christian Church. Um, we have been going through the letter to the assembly in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, as it's, as it's known, and we have been on a long journey if you will. Uh, we, are, we have come to chapter 15 after concluding a three-chapter work on uh, spiritual gifts and things of that sort uh, for the early church. Now we're in chapter 15 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 today in this lesson. I'd like to say, because I think it's probably true, that chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is a textbook in itself. This passage, or this chapter, covers gospel facts, as recorded in the scriptures, and witnessed by the apostles and many others, more than 500, according to the scriptures. Also, it deals with subject matter, theological matters, if you will, or doctrinal matters, history matters, from Adam and the entrance of sin into the uh, family of men to the Messiah sent from heaven to remedy the very penalty for sin itself. And that was accomplished through his death his blood, the burial and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Also, we witness within this chapter the culmination of the Jewish age with the full-grown kingdom of God being delivered up uh, with the Father being once again all in all for the kingdom, we, we find the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. All of this we can know in this chapter as faith remedies our hearts, or readies our hearts, rather not remedies. As faith readies our hearts and minds for the truth. I think it's a, a true case for faith if you're looking for uh, wonderful apologetical evidences concerning the gospel and why the gospel is needed, uh, the uh, culmination of what the gospel brings. And it starts out, this chapter starts out with, with an item, uh, if you will, for the, probably the first 10 verses, talking about the supremacy of God's word as recorded in the scriptures. Now, you see, I say it that way because I want you to understand if God's word doesn't hold that supreme place in your mind and in your heart, then you could certainly have doubts about what it's saying. But there is a supremacy of God's word. Think about Adam and Eve. If they would have held the supremacy of God's word in their heart, they would not 
had committed uh, an act of rebellion in doing just what they had been instructed not to do. The penalty for what they did was clearly given by God himself. In that day you will surely die. So this is, the idea of sin is a, is a big issue in the Bible. Um, salvation, of course, is the biggest issue as far as we're concerned. But we have to really understand that sin is the problem that God needed to deal with for man's sake. We couldn't do it ourselves. Now, the supremacy of God's word. Let's, let's look at the first 10 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm reading from Young's Literal Translation, which I think is very accurate in this text, um, giving us a very clear picture of what's being said. And he begins, the apostle begins with this, And I make known to you, brethren, the good news that I proclaim to you, which also you did receive, in which also you have stood, though uh, through which also you are being saved. In what words I proclaimed good news to you, if you hold fast, except you did believe in vain. For I delivered to you first what also I did receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the writings, the scriptures in our vernacular, and that he was buried, and that he hath risen on the third day according to the writings, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Afterwards he appeared to above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained till now. And certain also did fall asleep. Afterwards he appeared to James, and then all the apostles, once again. And last of all, as to the untimely birth, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I did persecute the assembly of God. And through the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace that is towards me came not in vain, <clears throat> but more abundantly than all did I labor, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I'll pause there and make these comments concerning these, these passages. The first two verses are very well organized to proclaim to the Corinthians those things that, that they know, they had heard. They knew them to be true. Thus, they must stand on their decisions. This, uh, this, this layout, the, the way this is presented in this chapter, is very, very much uh, like a debate would go, or even a court case, uh, if you were making a defense of why you believe the gospel, 
and in the way it's laid out, it really leaves very little room for uh, any real doubt. Uh, as long as we hold the word of God to be supreme. So, here's the points in these two verses. The gospel was preached to them through the Apostle Paul. And that gospel is the gospel that they did receive. They received it. They heard it clearly. And they were converted. Also, in which they also have stood. They were believing the gospel. They had believed the gospel. They'd been holding it fast. Most of them at least. Some were wavering, but most were holding to the gospel message. But they had, they had questions, and, and that's fine. That's why this letter was pre presented. Now concerning the gospel, he says, Through which also you are being saved in the very words proclaimed to them, if, if they hold fast. Now, this, this section of scripture right here makes it very clear that when we are presenting the gospel, the terms of pardon, for people to hear, to be converted, and to have faith in that they are the word of God, let's make sure that they are the very words from scripture. I think that's very important. Now, we see a lot of alterations in various places today. You know, we have all sorts of uh, methods of preaching the gospel that most of them are not the gospel. They're men's ideas concerning the gospel, um, which are inappropriate, and I think they're not very useful. Also, they needed to be holding fast to that gospel first delivered the exactness of it, the completeness of it, and of course the concept. The last qualifier here is unless your belief was vain. Vain, friends, is basically an empty thought. It's, they, didn't, uh, they were not thinking out their decision. If at some point now they're just saying, I don't know why I ever accepted that, well, they had not thought it out well enough. Uh, that was on their part. It's not the fault of the gospel message, especially from the apostles. So uh, that qualifier is put there to make sure that everything is presented. As we move on to verse thir 3 and 4, he now is, is going to give us the uh, idea of um, everything according to the writings. In other words, everything to do with the, with the Christ, the Messiah, who Jesus of Nazareth was, all of the things that transpired within his, his life, his birth, his, uh, his ministry, the, uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and of course, 
the gospel message being delivered for the first time on Pentecost. All of this according to the scriptures, according to the writings, as Young has put it. What the apostle delivered as of first importance. These are things that are of first importance. This is what he starts to talk to the people about when he goes to a new town, goes to a new city, comes in the synagogue. He wants to tell them about the Messiah and salvation in his name. That was his duty as an apostle to go to the Jew first and then the Gentile and to do so for this very reason. Now, I've selected a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, a very common and well-known passage that speaks of the Messiah. And all of these things that he says here, according to the writings, according to scripture, we can really, we can match up here in Isaiah 53. And that's just one place. There's multiple places. I think there's over 220 some prophecies concerning the Messiah fulfilled within that time period. But here we have writings from Isaiah chapter 53. And also there's even a confirmation of this from Daniel chapter 9. I won't read it to you today. Uh, I have another passage in Daniel I'm going to read. But Daniel 9.26 simply talks about the Messiah being cut off at a certain point during his vision which of course we know is the crucifixion. But all of this is confirmed. What's the th for first thing of first importance? That Christ died for our sins. That's the number one thing to be said and to be proved. As a matter of fact, if we're going to try to prove it, we'd, we'd look at Isaiah 53, uh, verse 8 and verse 11, and here's what it says. He, that is the Messiah, was taken from oppression and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Let's go down to verse 11. He shall see of the fruit of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant instruct many in righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Of course we understand that's the, the Christ, the Messiah on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, shedding his blood, which by the way is a necessity for the removal of sin from the very first sin ever committed in the Garden of Eden until Christ did it once for all on the cross. A.D. 31. Number two, we find according to the scriptures. Um, and that we find, we can compare Isaiah 53, 5 and 10. What does it say? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. 
And it goes on in that light. But I'll jump down to verse 10. Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He has subjected him to suffering. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. The crucifixion caused the death of Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus of Nazareth was not done yet in his work as it goes on. Isaiah 53.9 speaks about what we read in Corinthians. And that he was buried. Remember the gospel account of his burial. He would have been buried with the two thieves, one on each side of him. He would have been buried in the grave outside. Uh, the pauper's graves where literally thousands of Jews had been buried after crucifixion. But here in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, And men appointed his grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there guile in his mouth. Remember the story of Joseph of Arimathea? A rich man. This was his tomb. Never had had, a, had been a body in it. Carved out of the stone. He was a Pharisee. A secret disciple of Jesus. Uh, with Nicodemus. Yes. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And that he arose the third day. And that we, we, we read in. Uh, in verse 10 of Isaiah 53 that he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. In other words, there's more to this after the burial. And then in verse 12 we read this in Isaiah 53. Therefore will I assign him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and was reckoned with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors also according to the scripture and the testimony of many living in that day and when was that day AD 57, 58, somewhere in that time period. Uh, this had all occurred about AD uh, 31, these things that we've just been talking about. But it was this letter was written about AD 57. Now in Daniel, in Daniel 7, verse 14, we read this. And there was given him the him is the Messiah, of course. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. 
And of course, Daniel was speaking of that kingdom that he had seen many years ago. Uh, that, that was the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar uh, had had. The kingdom cut out of the rock, cut out of the, the stone, that, not cut out by the hands of men. That kingdom was an everlasting kingdom. Never to be uh, populated by others than those of God. And of course, to never have an end. Now, please note, as the Apostle Paul has written these things, and I think uh, done a wonderful job in presenting it, this account that all things have come to pass according to scripture and I've just read from Isaiah and Daniel uh, there's many others as, as we know because God keeps all of his promises and all things were fulfilled during this time period according to the Son of God all things have been fulfilled of the Old Testament. Now, if we look at verse 5 through 10, uh, we have the list of all the witnesses, the eyewitnesses. Uh, we need to qualify the issue of witness. These are eyewitnesses. Uh, these are witnesses that uh, had spent years and time with Jesus of Nazareth had heard him, had touched him, had watched him, had learned from him, and had seen all of these things right to the ascension when he left them and went into heaven to be at the right hand of his father. And they were sent out to be his apostles. That would be the 12, of course, and the apostle Paul being the 13th. And all of these, that's why they testi testified of the resurrected Christ and could do so as an eyewitness. Why is this so important? Of course, we know that our hope and our faith are anchored in the resurrection state of being. Not just the resurrection uh, where people use it in the, in the verb form where we're talking about the standing up of the dead the rising again of the dead but the resurrection state of being that uh, I would suggest you read the chapter uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 11 read the whole chapter if you want a, a defining moment of what the resurrection is in the mind of Jesus and the Jews that he taught it's a state of being the church has lost this concept today uh, we're looking for resurrection instead of understanding that we live in resurrection and that's that's a difference um, some may not think it's important but it is uh, it is when there's questions asked concerning these things now the last part of this chapter the last part of our lesson this morning not the chapter is this what then was preached through the apostles of Christ must be believed and accepted as truth the truth from heaven now that's imperative it was imperative for them it's imperative for us 
we need to learn from what the apostles taught. Not only their, their, their witness, but all that they taught that is the very mind of Christ, the will of Christ for the family of God, for the body of Christ. And this is what the apostle writes concerning this. Starting with verse 11, we'll go through 19. Listen carefully to what he says. <clears throat> Whether then I or they, so we preach and so you did believe. That's verse 11. See, that's a statement. And he's, he's making it so that they understand that he expects them to be faithful to what they swore allegiance to and have been born into. And if Christ is preached that out of the dead he hath risen, how can certain among you that there is no rising again of dead persons? So apparently there was some saying this within the assembly in Corinth. Well, that needed to be addressed, I would agree. Verse 13. Here he starts his argument concerning the resurrection and making statements that are, I think, inescapable. And if there be no rising again of dead persons, neither hath Christ risen. And if Christ hath not risen, then void is our preaching, and void also your faith. And we also are found, found false witnesses of God, because we did testify of God that he raised up the Christ, whom he did not raise, if the dead persons do not rise. For if dead persons do not rise, neither hath Christ risen. And if Christ, ha Christ has, hath not risen, vain is your faith, you are yet in your sins. Then also, those having fallen asleep in Christ did perish. If in this life we have hope in Christ only, of all men we are most to be pitied. Now that verse isn't an accusation against Christ. What he's saying is, if, we, if we're only speaking about a good man with good teaching and a loving heart and a great healer, and now he's just dead and gone, if that be the case, then they are exactly as is said. Of, of all men, we are most to be pitied. So, I think the points we can quickly look at here is this. If Christ is raised from the dead, that was witnessed by many, and it was, how can some of you say there is no rising again out of the dead? Now here's the thing. I'm wondering, I think that probably they were not assuming that 
it was Christ that didn't that was not raised from the dead but it's they're not they're not believing that anybody else is uh, so but either way we have a problem because if the dead do not rise the rest of us all the other men and women ever if there's no resurrection from the dead he's saying then Christ you see this shows the humanity of Jesus of Nazareth uh, if if as some people teach he is just a um, just a uh, a figment from heaven not really a man just looks like a man sounds like a man and other things uh, but really you know um, all of the rest of it is just a stage then there then there's a problem but you see that's not what happened the gospel accounts are so accurate to show there was a death physical death on the cross that being certain there also was a resurrection arising again out of the dead for he was seen by many witnesses that is a fact so all of this is saying of course you're wrong about that if that's what you think you're wrong now let me let me add something here in reference to the Greek world at that time. Remember, we're talking about men and women. Even though there were some Jewish people uh, in the congregation, probably a, quite a few, but the Greek thinking of that day, uh, the idea of of being uh, of your body rising again, uh, such as Jesus. His body was gone out of the tomb. You see, the Greeks' teaching was that the body is a prison of the soul or the spirit, if you will. That when we die, when the body dies, this is a release and a wonderful thing. It's a release when we die. But you see, what kind of calamity this would cause if the Greeks and the people of that day when they have to go back into some kind of body, they would look as it uh, look at it as a calamity. Uh, it, it's not a good state. But you see, they had no understanding of the resurrection. They had no under understanding of the kingdom of God. So their thinking was based on error, whereas the the thinking of uh, the apostles. And the, the teaching of the apostles based on the truth from heaven. Secondly, if there is not the resurrection of the dead, then Jesus has also not risen. So they can't have it both ways. Our preaching, Paul says, is vain, meaning useless. And your faith is vain. You are still in your sins. They're still in their sins? Now what? So when they deny that the resurrection, in, in whatever state and in whatever largeness or smallness of their denying, they are taking their sins back upon themselves because they have become unbelievers. The resurrection 
is a necessity of the gospel message, is a necessity of our salvation. Then also, as he adds this at the end, which was really must have stung to some of those, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, there's nothing there. That's, and the Greeks were not even considering this. If there is no resurrection out of the dead. But friends, there is resurrection. There is resurrection. Because as Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And the resurrection means that all the resurrection is is found in him. And the life is not just the life that we live as a physical man and woman, but the life, the life that we live with God without end. That's the life. That's the life that we're seeking in this life. The apostles' argument here leaves very little room of escape. If what the apostles, and they all preached this same thing, was not true, then man has no hope at all. In other words, if this, this resurrection of all the gospel teaches concerning all of these things to do with men and women living this life and, and, and when they die physically, if, if this is not true, as some were saying, there's no hope at all. Now here's why. This is how I see it. And there's two points here. Being outside of the faith in Christ, as we preach today, you're either in Christ or you're not. If you are in Christ, you have hope of salvation. You have hope of living forever in the kingdom of God in the spiritual realm when you leave this life and if we don't if we do not live in Christ if we are not in Christ and the father and son are not in us if we are not part of the spiritual kingdom it leaves nothing for men and women but the utter darkness as a future home. That's what the Bible talks about. Utter darkness meaning nothingness, not, not nothingness, but a conscious nothingness. You know what I'm talking about there? Go into a cave and find out how much is going on in that darkness. Well, a lot of things are going on in your head but it's a terrifying situation when it comes right down to it. That's what utter darkness is. Being a follower of Jesus while still denying the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, as some were doing in Corneth, leaves one an empty faith and no hope of heaven. Why? Because it's not according to the pattern of salvation, not according to what God has given men 
to be saved through Christ and the resurrection. Now please note, I think the Corinthians and all all Christians everywhere need to put uh, all things under the situation of faith. We live in faith in this life. We take resurrection, the state of resurrection, and all about resurrection in faith. If we, if, we, if we say our faith isn't strong enough to believe in the resurrection, well then how can we have any part of it? For if the Corinthians or anyone now cannot accept the doctrine of the apostles of Christ, then they have no part of his kingdom. Thus we, we think again of the utter darkness you see, friends, this is why we can continue to compel those that listen uh, to this, those that study their scriptures and that seek God and seek salvation through his son, that mankind, men and women, have a part in their salvation. Faith is, is a part of your salvation. To be converted, to have faith, to obey those terms of pardon. We have a part in the, the, um, uh, the opportunity to die to Christ and be made alive in Christ um, through the obedience to the gospel. That's, that's what we do. There are some that teach that you do nothing. You simply are or you aren't. How could that be true according to Scripture? It can't be. So, I believe that when we think of faith, what Paul was saying here was, you stood on the truth, you were converted, you believed, you put your hand and your shoulder to the wheel, as you were brought into the kingdom and thus you must remain uh, faithful to every point of the pattern of God. For through faith we have hope of living with God without end. And what else can we have faith in that will bring us to that point? Those would be my words today in summary of the first 19 verses and uh, we will continue on through this chapter uh, in the weeks to follow and we we pray that you will you will benefit greatly from uh, once again or maybe the very first time going through the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians it is a joy indeed to do so and we wish you good day uh, as you serve the Lord Amen